Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Andrew Chaikin will discuss voices from the moon. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Show. Well, it has now been 40 years since Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin made one giant leap for mankind by landing on the moon. The transformative power of that event changed the course of history, affecting many lives, perhaps none more so than those first explorers to the moon. Well, joining us today to discuss their stories is Mr. Andrew Chaikin. Mr. Chaikin is the author of the highly acclaimed A Man on the Moon, which was the basis for the HBO miniseries From the Earth to the Moon. A former editor of Sky and Telescope, he has also written numerous pieces for publications such as Newsweek and Scientific American, and his latest release written with Victoria Cole, Voices from the Moon, Apollo Astronauts Describe Their Lunar Experiences, details these stories for a general audience. Uh, Mr. Chaikin, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure to have you on the program, and certainly very timely. It's been 40 years since the first uh, moon landing. Surprising that it's only been 40 years? You know, it's weird. I don't know whether to feel like it's a long time or not, because in some ways, it's such a vivid part of my memory, and I miss it the way I miss my childhood. But the other thing is that we're looking back 40 years at the most futuristic thing that humans have ever done. Basically, Apollo happened out of sequence. Gene Cernan, who was the last man on the moon on Apollo 17, said that it was almost like Kennedy grabbed a decade of time out of the 21st century and spliced it into the 1960s. And ever since Apollo ended, we've been stuck in low-Earth orbit, and we're still trying to get back to where we were in 1972. So I don't know what to think when I think about it, the fact that it's been 40 years. I, I'm confused. <laughs> and is it somewhat disconcerting that it's been so long since we've attempted to return to the moon? Yeah, it is disconcerting. And, you know, we didn't go to the moon the first time out of some love of exploration. We went to the moon the first time because we wanted to beat the Russians. And when we did that, we lost the impetus to do anything more. You know, that's really what this is about. It's really whether or not we as a culture can get with the need for exploration for its own sake, for the, the vitality and even the long-term survival of the human species. I mean, I think young people are inherently jazzed about exploration. I do. I think people are, they want to be amazed. They want to experience wonder and awe. And they know that space exploration does that. They love the, the images from the Hubble telescope and so forth. I don't think they really understand the value of humans in space because, quite honestly, there hasn't been that much value to humans in space since we stopped exploring, with the exception, I would say, of the Hubble repair mission, which was spectacular. But, you know, we've been going around in circles, so it doesn't seem very exciting. On the other hand, the robotic missions that NASA has been doing 
sending probes to orbit Saturn, which the Cassini probe has been doing for the last five years, and the rovers on Mars that have been working for five and a half years. You know, all this stuff is tremendously exciting and and I think does basically grab people. But I think the culture in general is so short-sighted and focused on the short term that anything like exploration that's based on long-term effort and thinking way ahead into the future is kind of harder for people to grok. (laughs) Thank you for uh, attempting to grok. (laughs) Yeah, well, I try to grok a lot of things, and one of the things I, I try to grok is what is it that would connect with people to get them focused on what's going to move us all forward. I think there's a couple of things. There's the fact that we get new knowledge, obviously, new discoveries from exploration. But it's also the fact that exploration is hard to do. I mean, this is something Kennedy said back then. He said, we choose to go to the moon and do the other things in this decade, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And that's a very profound statement. I mean, people don't realize how profound that is sometimes. But in so many ways, our life is about making things as easy as possible. But in the long run, we don't get better We don't increase our capabilities and get stronger and and smarter and more capable unless we do hard things. And exploration is one of those things that stretches us beyond our comfort zone and beyond our current capabilities. Part of the problem is that sort of a lack of igniting the imagination of public as as far as space goes. Do you think Mars would be sort of that next step that would really uh, galvanize the public? Well, I think Mars is very exciting, but I don't think we're going to go to Mars anytime soon. I mean, really, if you think about it, I, I had a book that came out last year called A Passion for Mars, and I spent four years writing that one. I mean, A Man on the Moon Took Eight, A Passion for Mars Only Took Four. But in that book, I talk about the challenges of getting to Mars and living on Mars. And give you one example, I mean, everybody knows that it's a challenge from the standpoint of hardware and how do you build a spaceship that's going to work reliably for a, a two-and-a-half-year mission to go to Mars, be on Mars for a year, and then come home. You know, there's all that stuff. But then even if you were able to solve all that stuff, I'll give you one that's really interesting. When you're on Mars, your radio signals travel from Mars to the Earth. They take anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes, depending on where the relative positions are of Mars and Earth. And that means that you get on the microphone and you say, Houston, we've had a problem, to coin a phrase. It's going to be another 20 minutes, maybe 40 minutes, before you get an answer. And that's not much help. So you have to realize that people who go to Mars are going to be cutting the cord with Earth in a way that astronauts have never done before. It is a huge step a huge increase in difficulty to go to Mars compared to going back to the moon, going to a near-Earth asteroid, which would also be a really neat mission and would sort of get us one step towards cutting the cord with Earth. You're not 35 million miles away or 200 million miles away the way you would be going to Mars, but you're maybe a million miles away and you start to have to deal with those radio delay times. So there's all kinds of things for us to tackle before we're ready to go to Mars. I mean, that's always true. Every time you do something that's a stretch, you get new technologies out of it. And, uh, you know, that will certainly be true with going to Mars. Also, there's the fact that Mars may 
yet harbor some form of life or may very well have had life in the past, even if it's just microbes, that would teach us quite a bit about, that would be a momentous discovery right there. It would change our view, and it would be a way of looking back to how life got started to begin with. If life on Mars, even if it's just microbial life, if it's different from microbial life on Earth in some way, then suddenly we know that life got started on two planets rather than getting started on one or the other and getting kind of kicked around by meteorite impacts and scattered from one planet to another, which is another possibility. And Mars is also a phenomenally interesting place, geologically speaking, but the moon is also a tremendously interesting place. It's, I, I think of it as the jewel in the crown of the solar system because it's the one place in the solar system where the earliest history is preserved as cleanly as possible. And it's like, I always say going to the moon is like somebody let you into the rare book room of the cosmic library. And you go to the moon in a, in a sense to read those earliest pages, those earliest chapters of our history as the solar system history. It's a place where we're going to learn how to live on other worlds. It's kind of an outward bound school for doing that. And it's also the only place in the solar system where you can stand on the surface of another world and see the view of our Earth that has been such a consciousness-raising site for all of us since Apollo. You know, it was the view of the Earth that was really Apollo's greatest legacy and launched, gave a kickstart to the environmental movement and so forth. And uh, only the moon gives you that. Hmm. What is the will like at NASA for a return to the moon? Well, I think the will is there. I don't think they're quite able to get their act together. Hmm. They're still struggling to just build a booster rocket that will get us, replace the shuttle and getting us up to the space station, never mind going to the moon. I mean, we, we, we're, if the shuttle's going to be retired next year, we're not going to have any way of getting to the space station, let alone beyond low Earth orbit. So they're, they're still trying to get their act together, and it's frustrating to watch because I don't know that their engineering decisions have always been that smart. A lot of times it's, uh, and I'm not an engineer, so I'm kind of, I, I guess I shouldn't really even be saying anything definitive about it, but I do feel that NASA gets caught up in preserving jobs and making sure that the engineering establishment is kept going. And, you know, a lot of times engineering, it's sort of engineering uber alles. Instead of saying, well, what is it we want to accomplish and what's the best way to do that? In the past, anyway, NASA has often said, well, let's just build this cool thing and trust us it'll be worth, there'll be a lot of cool things we can do with it. Well, that hasn't really worked out <laughs> with the space station, for example. So I'm, I'm frustrated with the way things have gone. I hope we can find a way to get back on track. Hmm. Do you think that private enterprise will have a big role in it? It's possible. Yeah. I'm very interested to see, for example, what the company called SpaceX is able to do. They're based in Los Angeles, and they they have rocket designs, and, and they want to build a rocket that will um, be capable of carrying not only supplies but astronauts up to the space station. And if they get that done before NASA has its replacement vehicle going, for example, that would be something of a game-changer and would be exciting. And if they can figure out to, a way to do that to get up into low Earth orbit without breaking the bank and, and some kind of reliable fashion, that would be great too. I have a lot of hope that the passion of private industry 
and the innovation and the fact that they're not so tied to previous ways of doing things might actually help solve this problem. In a way, they're sort of in the situation uh, NASA was uh, free and unencumbered by previous experience. Yeah, although in a lot of ways the challenge is harder Mm -hmm. than it was 40 years ago because 40 years ago or 50 years ago when NASA started, the basic science, the basic discoveries that enabled you to go into space and go to the moon and so forth had already been made. Now the rocket is a mature technology, just as the airplane is. We're not getting major leaps in performance from rockets and and airplanes, those are all behind us. You know, that's what 50 years ago we were on a very steep curve of we could just build bigger and bigger rockets and get more done and send more up. That's not the case anymore. And so in a way, it's more challenging now because you have to say, well, how am I going to improve something that basically is as good as it can get right now. Mm-hmm. We do want to talk about the book, since it is very fascinating, and I think certainly very inspiring for this whole issue. Um, why did you decide to compile this particular book? Voices from the Moon, yeah. yeah. The full title is Voices from the Moon, Apollo Astronauts Describe Their Lunar Experiences. And, and what this is, is it's uh, selections from the very extensive interviews that I did 20 years ago with 23 out of the 24 men who went to the moon. When I wrote A Man on the Moon, and that one was an eight-year period from 1985 to 1994, I spent hours, over 150 hours total, talking to these guys. The only one of the Apollo lunar astronauts I didn't talk to was Apollo 13's Jack Swigert, who had passed away in 1982. But all the others, you know, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Frank Borman, Alan Shepard, I sat down with at great length and asked them about every conceivable aspect of that experience of going to the moon. When I wrote A Man on the Moon, those interviews were the backbone of of the story, but it was a story. I wrote it out as a narrative, one that my goal was to let the reader feel as though he or she were going along with the astronauts. But the astronauts didn't speak for themselves. That's what we've done, my wife Victoria Cole and I have done with this new book. We've taken sections of those conversations, quotes from those conversations, and we've uh, constructed from them the arc of the entire lunar experience combined with beautiful new scans of their mission photography that have come out in the last several years from NASA. So this book, I would say, is more intimate because it's the astronauts speaking with their own voices, not uh, cleaned up in any way, just all the ums and ahs and the occasional swear word that they said to me when I sat with them. And it's fascinating because the astronauts, when they went to the moon, as everybody knows, they practiced everything over and over and over again. And I mean, they were as prepared as you can possibly be for an experience like that before they went. The thing they weren't prepared for what we call the mission they never trained for, was when they came back. Mm. And they had to face the rest of us saying, what did it feel like to be on the moon? Mm. So that was something that has stayed with them their whole lives and that they really were not suited for, in a sense, because as pilots, as test pilots and fighter pilots, you know, you really don't want to get 
into your feelings. You know, feelings can kill you if you're flying a high-performance airplane or a spacecraft. And so, you know, and the other thing was they all grew up in the 1930s. They were from a generation in which what you felt was much less important than what you did. Sort of like the greatest generation that fought World War II. Do it, don't talk about it, and blather on about your feelings, right? Mm -hmm. Half these guys, you know, one of the astronauts said to me that when he came back and people started harassing him, <laughs> not harassing him, but asking him constantly about what did it feel like to go to the moon, he said, I didn't know how to answer that. You know, I didn't know what feelings were. I could tell them what I did, but I, I couldn't tell them how I felt about it. It really bugged him. So he actually had to delve into that. He had to really think long and hard about how to answer that question. And a lot of the guys have struggled with that. But when I sat down with them, I must say, they came through in magnificent fashion. I think the quotes in Voices from the Moon show that. Do you think a lot of the astronauts were cut from the same cloth, or do they really have very distinct personalities? Well, it's interesting. They were cut from pretty much the same cloth, mm -hmm. but they also had some really remarkable differences in personality and in the way that they reacted to that experience. And people always want to know whether the experience changed them. Hmm. And so there's a whole spectrum of responses to that. On the one end, you have Pete Conrad, who was the commander of the second moon landing Apollo 12. And Pete, the day he got selected as an astronaut in 1962, swore to himself that it would not change him. If he got to go to the moon, it, he was not going to be changed by the experience. When I interviewed him in 1985, he said it had not changed him, and he was very proud of that fact. I mean, you could, you could tell that he was just very proud of that. Hmm. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got Ed Mitchell from Apollo 14, who, on the way home from the moon, had a sort of consciousness change experience where he suddenly experienced the universe as an intelligent evolving entity and he spent his nasa career investigating the scientific underpinnings of consciousness and psychic phenomena and on another take on that was jim irwin on apollo 15 who came back and said that he'd had a profound spiritual experience and became a baptist minister until his death in 1991 so most of the guys are actually somewhere in the middle they talk about seeing the earth shrink to the size of your thumb as something that definitely changes your perspective <laughs> kind of puts into into perspective into proper perspective the ups and downs of daily life you know you just can't let yourself get too bent out of shape by something that didn't go the way you thought it would when you've seen the earth as a tiny little oasis of life in the void right so for most of the guys they would say that they were not fundamentally changed uh, but but that it was a tremendous professional high point after all they went to the moon as professionals mm -hmm. and it was a tremendously satisfying thing and it was a thrill but they're basically the same guys they were hmm. do you think they're ever going to be able to communicate that or the only people that can understand it would be another astronaut I think they communicated in voices from the moon. Mm -hmm. I really do. I mean, not to be too self-serving about <laughs> this, but um, yeah, I think they. I think they came through and they communicated it. And we we spend. The book is not just about the experiences they had on the flights. It's also about their lives before they became astronauts and after they came back from the moon and and that impact. So you'll see all that there. Uh, well, we are running slightly out of time. We just maybe have some final words regarding the missions to the moon, uh, the book, and anything else you'd like to add. Well, I do want to tell folks that they should keep an eye on 
NASA's return to the moon. In particular, there's a mission that is going to hit the south pole of the moon on October 9th. It's called LCROSS, which stands for Lunar Crater Observation and Sensing Satellite. And it's going to impact in the south pole of the moon inside one of the permanently shadowed craters there that may contain deposits of ice that were originally brought to the moon by comets over billions of years. So October 9th, in the morning, early morning on October 9th, we're going to have live video on the web from NASA's Ames Research Center, which is a great place and is the place that controlled the mission, created and, and is controlling the mission. And there'll be live video of the impact from the spacecraft and also from observatories on Earth and even the Hubble. So there's exciting stuff coming up, even though humans on the moon may be quite a few years off. There's some neat stuff going on right now. Also, I was involved in the creation of something called Moon in Google Earth is mm -hmm. the actual name. So go on Google and download that. It's part of Google Earth, and then you just go up to the little icon that looks like a planet Saturn, and you choose the moon. And you can fly all over the moon to the landing sites. You can tour all of the places where people have been. You can go to uh, places where people haven't been and see what they're like, and we're going to be adding to it more and more and more as time goes on. It's amazing. I mean, the technology to be a vicarious lunar explorer has really come along. Is the hope that uh, one day we will return to the moon? Yeah, I mean, I think we will. I do. I hope that I'm around to see it. And I really do believe that when people are back on the moon picking up where Apollo left off, that it's going to be very cool for the rest of us to be able to go outside and look up at the moon and know that you're seeing humanity's farthest outpost and that there are people up there who are living and working uh, to make us a truly spacefaring species. I think that's going to be an incredible time. It'll never be like the first time, but it'll be very exciting. It certainly will. Well, the new book is called Voices from the Moon, Apollo Astronauts Describe Their Lunar Experiences. Thank you very well, much for your time. It's my pleasure, and I'd love to hear from anybody that wants me to come visit their school or do a web visit with the school. Um, you can always contact me through my website. It's andrewchaikin.com, C-H-A-I-K-I-N, andrewchaikin.com. All right. I certainly hope people will go do that. Uh, again, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. And you were just listening to Mr. Andrew Chaikin discussing Voices from the Moon. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. my 
Alright, it's time to play the game. It is called the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. <laughs> Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Outward Bound or Stuck on Earth. So, for the falling five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they would be outward bound or just stuck on Earth, and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Chaikin, you ready to play the game? I am ready. All right, here we go. Outward bound or stuck on Earth, person number one, talk show host Jerry Springer. <laughs> well, in one sense, he's already left the solar system, but I think in, in the overall sense, he's very much stuck on Earth. Okay. Person number two is uh, the Apple CEO, Steve Jobs. Oh, definitely outward bound. Just thinking outside the box, thinking outside the orbit. <laughs> All right. Uh, number three is uh, Virgin uh, Company chairman uh, Richard Branson. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, he's trying to get us all up there, so mm -hmm. definitely outward bound. Book of flight on Virgin Galactic. Exactly. All right. Uh, person number four is the uh, heiress Paris Hilton. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I think she's actually not from here. <laughs> I think she's stuck on Earth because her ship got damaged in the landing. We don't have to watch her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. And finally, number five, it's the president of the United States, Barack Obama. Oh, uh, definitely outward bound. He's one of my one of my faves, and uh, yeah, I hope he uh, keeps us literally outward bound when his recommendations for NASA come out later this year. I'm really hoping that, that we can get back to the game of exploring with humans as well as robots. Uh, that's really be great. Well, uh, Mr. Chicken, I want to thank you for sticking around, playing our game, and of course, again, talking about your book, which is called Voices from the Moon, Apollo Astronauts Describe Their Lunar Experiences. Uh, Mr. Chicken, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Been my pleasure. Thank right. you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>